1: My warning, if you will, to corporate America is to stay out of politics.
2: I mean, if we were playing roulette, it's as if corporate spenders are betting on red and black at the same time. But in our political system, they're betting on red and blue. And for me, that is worse.
0: Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the courts and the law and the Supreme Court and the rule of law. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I cover these things for Slate. And this week saw a whole lot of action at the Supreme Court, blockbuster ruling for Google in a longstanding fight with Oracle about whether Google committed copyright infringement when it copied little bits of programming language to build its Android operating system. The court also got a lot of attention when Justice Stephen Breyer delivered a speech at Harvard on Tuesday night suggesting that the justices are not political at all and that probably the courts shouldn't be expanded.
2: Indeed, what I'm trying to do is to make those whose initial instincts may favor important structural change or other similar institutional changes, such as forms of court packing think long and hard before they embody those changes in law.
0: And the week ended with Joe Biden signing an executive order that will create a commission to study questions around structural court reform. Later on in the show, Slate Plus members are going to have access to my chat with Slate's own Mark Joseph Stern about the slightly worrisome roots of originalism as a constitutional theory and about Clarence Thomas's anti-big tech rampage at the court this week. Something we wanted to button down on this week's show is this curious connection between the court, corporate speech... Corporate speech rights, and the Georgia boycotts. We've talked a whole bunch about the big omnibus vote suppression bill passed in Georgia last week, but we wanted to think a little bit more clearly about what connects the boycotts, Citizens United, corporate speech, corporate money, and the court. And to do that, We have turned to Chara Torres Spellacy, who thinks and writes really brilliantly about money in politics. Chara is a Brennan Center Fellow. She's a professor of law at Stetson University College of Law, where she teaches courses in election law, corporate governance, business entities, and constitutional law. Before she went over to Stetson, Chara was counsel in the Brennan Center's Democracy Program, where she provided guidance on money in politics and the judiciary to state and federal lawmakers. Her most recent book is called Political Brands. It's an exploration of the legal framework for the use of commercial branding and advertising techniques in presidential political campaigns. It was published in 2019. Chara, welcome to Amicus. Thank you so much for having me. I've really wanted to have you on for a long time. And somehow the gods offered us Georgia and boycotts and Mitch McConnell talking about corporate speech this week. And I think if we could just start with Georgia, even before we get to Georgia 2021, you just wrote a pretty deep dive historical piece examining the long, long, long history of vote suppression in Georgia, Jim Crow race-based vote suppression. It goes way back to the end of the Civil War before the 15th Amendment was even adopted. Can you just give us the lowlights of what you were unearthing in that historical dive?
2: Sure. So I've been working on a bigger piece for NYU Law Review about Reconstruction. And one of the really strange artifacts I found was this history of what had happened in Georgia right after the Civil War. So what I found is that Georgia, even before the 15th Amendment was adopted, so the 15th Amendment is what guarantees the right to vote to Black men. And even before that, we had elected officials, Black elected officials in the state of Georgia. So they are elected in eighteen. 68. And almost immediately, the white members of the legislature turn against these 33 elected black men and kick them out of the legislature. And one of the ways that they were able to kick them out was they said that they could not vote on their own expulsion. And it took federal intervention to get those elected black officials back in their seats in the legislature. And I think that context is important here because I think it's easy to think that the voter advocates today are overreacting or they're being ridiculous or, you know, what does it matter whether it's this many hours you can vote or that many hours you can vote? And I think what uh, a lot of people who know this history will say is, we have seen people completely disenfranchised for decades in this very state. And so when we see you creeping up to that line and starting this process, we don't want to relive that again. And I think that is the spirit in which protesters have addressed these changes to Georgia's voting laws.
0: So let's talk about how cynical you are about corporations, because I'm trying to ferret it out from what you've been writing. And I feel as though you and I are a little bit living on that same seam of being, in some sense, happy that someone is drawing attention, you know, to what's going on in this huge omnibus bill in Georgia, but also Pretty darn cynical about Coca Cola's motives and Delta's motives here. And so let's start with, and I think you wrote about this just this week, they turned on a dime, Delta and Coca Cola. They initially didn't seem to have much of a problem with these laws. And then you note, you know, 72 current and former black executive from a whole bunch of corporations condemned Georgia law. And then, boom, we're hearing COLA and we're hearing Delta saying, this is appalling. And I think I can't tell if as you write about that, you're saying, and that's a good thing, or, oh, my God, these freaking hypocrites, they're just doing this to perform some kind of corporate conscience. So how cynical are we, really?
2: Well, when you think about corporate influence in politics, it it's very heterogeneous. Number one, corporations themselves are very different. You have everything from... A mom and pop store that is a tiny corporation, everything to a multinational corporation, which is omnipresent, and then somehow you can't get them legally anywhere, which is one of the things that I'm keeping an eye on at the Supreme Court right now. So if we're speaking about corporate power, There's this case pending before the Supreme Court, which is called Nestle versus Doe. Mm -hmm. And in this case, Nestle is arguing that they can't be reached for human rights violations abroad precisely because they are a corporation. And I think they are about to win this argument at the Supreme Court which is sort of horrifying. So you have that strain of law, which is excusing corporations from the responsibility that a normal human being would have if they had conducted themselves in the same way. And then you also have the Citizens United line of the jurisprudence, which allows corporations this ability to spend an unlimited amount of money in our politics. There's a difference between federal election law and the election law in each of the 50 states. So at the federal level we have the Tillman Act which prevents a corporation from directly giving to a federal candidate out of their corporate treasury. And so when you're talking about even corporate spending, it is sort of different whether you're talking about federal elections or state elections. In in about half of the states, corporations can give directly to candidates for office, like who is going to run for your governorship, or who's going to be your attorney general if your state elects your attorney general. In Georgia, that is one of the states that allows corporations to give directly from the corporate treasury to candidates for state office, including their legislature. So there is this difference in law. So at the federal level, what you get are corporate PACs. So corporate PACs are made up of individuals who are related to the corporation. So Typically, they are the officers and directors and employees of a particular corporation, and those human individuals give money to the corporate PAC, and then the corporate PAC spends in a federal election. And then the third way that corporate money can get into our elections is post-Citizens United. There was another case called Speech Now, which was actually a circuit court decision, but the circuit court decision in Speech now cites to Citizens United for all of its reasoning, and under that case, that is what created a super PAC. So, with a super PAC, we have a PAC that is spending in federal elections, and under that ruling, they are allowed to gather in money from unlimited sources, including you know from your local billionaire, your local labor union, your local multinational corporation. And then they can spend an unlimited amount of money, so long as they do it independently of candidates and political parties. So those are the three main ways that corporate influence can get into our political system. And corporations are heterogeneous in how they use these avenues. Some use just spending through a super PAC, others will do all three. And I think it's worth noting that the reason that Coca-Cola and Delta and other Georgia companies were targeted by voting rights activists wasn't just that they were Georgia companies, which indeed they are. Like if you've ever flown through Atlanta in the Delta hub, Delta has a huge footprint in Georgia. But the reason that they were targeted by voting rights activists was that these particular companies had helped fund the sitting governor of Georgia and had helped fund the very authors of this regressive voting rights legislation, which is now law. So they were focusing on these corporations because these corporations had a role in facilitating the election of these particular politicians. And because you have... Direct spending from entities like Coca Cola, that then I think opens them up to the criticism and the threat of boycotts when the individuals that they have supported financially in politics then do some horrific thing. So, whether it's a bathroom bill or a voting rights restriction, that corporation is this is sort of permanently on the hook for the behavior of the people that they have supported financially.
0: Right. And I guess that's the paradox is, and I think you noted this in in one of the pieces you wrote this week, that Coca-Cola gave to Brian Kemp's gubernatorial campaign. They contributed to the state representative, the Republican state representative, Barry Fleming, who authored the legislation. But, you know, Coke gave money to both sides. In Georgia, both sides in about equal amounts. So did Delta. And so there's a way that they immunize themselves, right? They're not actually giving money to Brian Camp. They're just, it's a wash. Uh, They're giving to both sides. And I think your point is that, no, actually, you can give to both sides. But if one side does something truly horrifying, they have to be on the hook for that. So I think the hypocrisy of this, well, you know, we're not doing anything bad since we give to everyone gets called out, even though that's the game plan is that it never appears that they've done anything wrong because they're
2: supporting everybody equally. Yeah, I mean, if we were playing roulette, it's as if corporate spenders are betting on red and black at the same time. But in our political system, they're they're betting on red and blue at the same time. And for me, that is worse. <laughs> I mean, I am I'm sort of not a fan of the role that corporations have in funding our politics. Now, I realize most of our political campaigns are privately financed, which means you have to get the money from somewhere. And this is one of the reasons why I support public financing. I think there should be a alternative to having our representatives in Congress dial for dollars 30 hours a week. That is the recommendation that both the DNC and the RNC tell our freshman members of Congress that if you want to keep your seat, you have to get on the phone and beg for money 30 hours a week. It's taken on a life of its own. I mean, there was this great dissent in Buckley versus Vallejo, the original case from the 1970s where the Supreme Court creates our current campaign finance law. They are reviewing the Federal Election Campaign Act, which is a post-Watergate reform, and they basically tear that legislation to pieces. And there is this dissent from Justice White, and he talks about the impact that the Supreme Court is going to have on federal campaigns going forward. And he was talking from a... Position of experience because he had helped run JFK's election in 1960. And he said, You are putting our candidates on a fundraising treadmill, which I think is sort of the perfect metaphor. It's like it's never ending, you never win the race, it's just continuous. And I think this is particularly true of the members of Congress who are in the House, because they're up for a reelection every two years. And the average winning expenditure by a candidate is $2 million. And they have to raise this in hard money chunks. So they are perpetually talking to the donor class and literally begging for money so that they can run their next campaign. I have to believe that there is a better way of doing this.
0: If you are joining us for the first time, first of all, welcome. And if you like what you hear, be sure to look for us in your podcast app and hit the button to subscribe or to follow. That way you will never miss an episode. And it will also help us ascend the algorithm so more people can find us too. We'll be right back after these messages.
1: You're listening to this podcast, so you care about history. And what a period we're living through right now specifically when it comes to the situation in Israel and Gaza. Right now, you're hearing a lot of loud voices screaming about genocide, massacre, and occupation. But these words, slogans, and various headlines are not enough to help understand what is happening over there. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History. Catch up on previous seasons and enjoy new episodes from Season 6 each week where they cover many of the topics that are relevant to what's going on in Israel today. From the history of infamous terror groups Hamas and Hezbollah, to the story of Nakba, to Israel's disengagement from Gaza in 2005, there's so much to uncover. Unpacking Israeli history cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to podcasts. And
0: we're going to hear now from another great sponsor on our show, SAP. This episode is brought to you by SAP. Revolutionary Technology, Real World Results, that's SAP Business AI. You've also written, and I think it's really worth flagging, that even when corporations get to look virtuous, as they are now, I guess, poised to do in Georgia, after a little while, things shake down and revert to normal anyway. And the example you write about is all the companies that were horrified after the Capitol riot on January 6th, and all the corporations that were like, oh no, now we can't fund anybody who is deliberately trying to nullify the election, and the ways in which the Chamber of Commerce is already saying, okay, come on back, the dust is cleared. Uh, And they're all going to pony up again. And so even if you have a corporation that is trying to do something that looks as though it's moral and ethical, at some point, they need to pay to play and they're back in the game, right?
2: I think this is an open question. And I have to say, as a former Senate staffer, the events of January sixth, twenty 2021 really shook me to my core. It made me realized that our democracy was really on a knife's edge that day. And one of the things that I've found dismaying in the ensuing few months here is that people seem to already be forgetting that deadly attack on the US Capitol on the day that the Electoral College votes were to be certified, thus making it official that Biden would be the new president. And I feel like we haven't grappled with that. And so I hope that, number one, we get a nine eleven style truth commission that looks into this and really examines it so that we don't repeat this mistake. The other thing that I'm very worried about is I think there's just sort of this assumption that the rioters themselves will all face criminal consequences and my, I guess my worry is that it's going to be like the, the Bundys out West. They were very clearly, in my mind, guilty of you know occupying uh, a federal office at the very least. And they weren't convicted of that. So I am worried that when we have these rioters in front of juries that... You never know what a jury will do, especially if the excuse is, I thought my president was telling me to do this. So I think the question of what corporations are going to do in terms of dealing with the Republicans who objected in their role as either a House member or a senator I think that's an open question. And then I think we really don't know how this story is going to end. We don't know if the people who did the rioting will get any legal consequences and how the public will perceive this in in the long term. I mean, I think if we go back a, a couple of years, a, a lot of us had high hopes for what we thought things like the Mueller report would mean to the to the public and to accountability and all of that. And it was sort of a huge disappointment, because I, I think the bet was made on uh, the Trump side that people would not read hundreds of pages of a legal document. And I think he was right. It, it didn't get read. It didn't get digested. It didn't get understood, or explained. And so there were very few consequences for things around the 2016 election. So when you say, like, how cynical are you about corporations? Incredibly cynical. I'm sort of, at this point, cynical about our entire enterprise here because we've had these various tests of our legal system and our expectations and norms in our democracy. And sort of over the past four years, most of those, in my estimation, have been just utter failures. Like, the idea that you could have a uh, sitting president take unconstitutional emoluments for all four years. And it goes from a case that a a court in New York says isn't ripe, to at the end of the Trump presidency, the Supreme Court saying that it's moot. Like, that is crazy. (laughs) Like There's no accountability anywhere. And and it's just so frustrating as someone who spends her days working on political corruption, corrupt politicians, and trying to make our democracy stronger. And I, I am at least encouraged that H.R. 1 got through the House. But, you know, am I holding my breath for the Senate to do the right thing? Probably not. It, it's so
0: empowering to not be the most desperately angsty person in dialogue. Usually it's me and I'm so delighted uh, to have you be sort of as broken as I am. I do wonder, and then I, I will stop asking you triggering questions because I, <laughs> I I do share, I think, your sense of zero accountability means this all just happens again. But I, I want to ask one more thing about the the corporate boycotts in Georgia, which is a really interesting fracture between, Stacey Abrams on the one hand, faith leaders and organizers on the other, AOC has weighed in. These questions of who corporate boycotts really harm. And I don't know if there's a definitive answer. I know that Stacey Abrams has been really clear, and I remember this going back to the Georgia boycotts in 2019 about the abortion bill that passed there, that that her stance has been pretty consistently, these boycotts hurt the poorest and the most vulnerable, take you know millions of dollars out of the pockets of the people who need them the most. You know, Coke is not going to suffer, but my constituents are suffering, and I I think that's descriptively accurate. Put aside, you know, Brian Kemp calling her a hypocrite. I actually think she's been very consistent on this. But it does raise this question for me again of are corporate boycotts, if Stacey Abrams is right, (laughs) are they actually even more empty performance because they actually do harm?
2: So I guess the thing that I would say about boycotts is that they are as American as apple pie. You might think of the way the nation started with Bostonians boycotting British tea. Now, they took it a a step further by actually destroying property, which I do not support. But in general, I think the power to boycott is a very important one. And the Supreme Court itself has protected political boycotts under the First Amendment. So the same part of the Constitution that empowers the court to give more of a voice to corporations and Citizens United. In Claiborne Hardware, the court does the same thing for political boycotters, which I think is important to realize, because boycotters, for whatever reason, they really get under the skin of otherwise reasonable people. And I think it's partly that it goes to the power of the purse and the power that consumers have over our society as a general matter. And you see this with Coca-Cola over the years. So, for example, in the early 2000s, Coca-Cola was part of a group called ALEC, uh, American Legislative Exchange Council. And ALEC was one of the sources of really strict voter ID laws. So what ALEC would do is it would hold these lavish conferences and lawmakers from around the country, from state legislatures, would come to the ALEC conference. And the members of ALEC are also corporate members. So you would have meetings where representatives from like Coke Industries and Coca-Cola and other huge American companies would sit in a room with state lawmakers, and then they would have sort of a menu of legislation that the group was pushing. And one of the things that they were pushing was restrictive voter ID. And Coca-Cola got in trouble with this when it was revealed that Coca-Cola was in this group and that the group was the source of these regressive voter ID laws. And so activists like Color of Change threatened to boycott Coca-Cola if they continued their relationship with Alec. And you didn't have to ask them twice. They almost as soon as the threat of the boycott went into effect, Coca-Cola was like, oh, we're, we're out of Alec. Sorry. No, no, no. Do not boycott us. And I think that sort of speaks to the different structures of corporations. So Coca-Cola is very sensitive to boycotts because they are literally public-facing. Like They produce these beverages and then individual consumers buy those beverages. Different corporate structures are not as exposed to public customers in the same way. So if your business model is, you know, we do back-end IT for other corporations, you're much less subject to a consumer boycott because a consumer probably has no idea that you really exist or what your product is or how you would boycott it. You'd have to be another business in order to boycott, you know, a business-to-business type offering. But anyways, Coca-Cola is extremely exposed to... The whims of the public because they're literally selling their product directly to each of us as consumers. And in, in that way, I think that the pressure that boycotts or even the threat of boycotts can bring to bear can be enormously important because our corporations have been given so much power in our politics. So I think what activists have been doing is they've been realizing, you know, my letters to my congressman or my letters to my senator or letters to the president are getting zero results. Let me try another pressure point. And one of the pressure points that they've been trying is, okay, well, let's see who funds this politician. Let me talk to that person and see whether putting pressure on the funders has an impact on the behavior of the elected official.
0: So actually, that answers my next question, which is in some sense you know you've talked about the storied history of the civil rights boycotts and dr king this is really different from organizing people to do boycotts this is organizers pressuring corporations to change their conduct so in a sense that's also kind of a marker of our age right i mean this isn't you know butts in the street this isn't skin in the game necessarily i'm in no way saying that isn't happening on the ground in georgia but i am saying this is a really efficient What Color of Change does is really efficient, which is just say, we're going to kneecap you with public opinion until you as a corporation stop doing dumb stuff. And, And that is new, right?
2: It's an interesting way of putting it. So, for example, the boycott that was at issue in Claiborne Hardware was a boycott by Black members of very tiny towns in Mississippi. And the demands of the boycotters were essentially twofold. One was they wanted more respect from the local police. So you can find their list of demands, and some of it is that they wanted to be called sir or ma'am instead of boy or girl by the local police. And then another demand was that local merchants should hire black clerks. And they boycott basically all of the businesses in the town because they thought of the businesses in the town as causing essentially both problems, Mm -hmm. that they couldn't get jobs. And when they were harassed by police, it was completely demeaning. And this boycott went on for years to the point where at least some of the businesses claimed that they literally went out of business because half of their patronage disappeared and disappeared for a really long time. And so, what the individuals in this little Mississippi enclave did is they sent one of their own to the state legislature. So, that person then convinces other members of the Mississippi legislature to change the law and to essentially make this type of boycott illegal. They basically call it a restraint of trade. And that law is retroactively applied to the boycotters. And not just to the boycotters, it was applied to the NAACP, who had had a role in organizing the black people in the town in the first place. And so when a judgment comes down from the Mississippi Supreme Court enforcing this law against them, the judgment is a joint in several, as in everyone, all of the defendants are on the hook. So all of these poor black people from Mississippi and the NAACP. And the judgment was so large that there was a risk that the NAACP, was about to go bankrupt because of this loss in Mississippi on this restraint of trade boycott theory. But when it gets to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court, I think, does the right thing and says, we have to put a line in the sand between violence, which is not ever acceptable, and peaceful boycotts, which have a political purpose, which are protected by the First Amendment. But if you think about the original request, it was both to the government and to local business owners. And the request was sort of, I think, very similar, like, treat us with respect. That was sort of the basic request that started this whole consternation (laughs) and conflict between individuals in this one small town in Mississippi.
0: And now let's return to our conversation with Professor Chara torres Spellacy, Brennan Center Fellow and Professor of Law at Stetson University College of Law. We're talking about money and speech and politics and whether Republicans have really come to the conclusion that maybe those three don't mix as well as they thought. I feel like we are going to have to talk about Citizens United. I'm worried um, that it's going to make you even sadder than you already are. But I do think inexorably we are pulled to talk a little bit about sort of how we got here, and you've talked a lot, I think, about the, the climate of dialing for dollars and the ways in which, you know, if you are a, a congressman, you are beholden to these people who you spend your entire day servicing and pacifying and asking for money. I was just looking at a Brennan Center report by Daniel Weiner. Saying that essentially now there's this tiny group of people post Citizens United that wield more power than at any time since Watergate. And this is the problem of Citizens United. It's, you know, historic wealth inequality that there's just a handful of huge, huge donors and nobody else. And that's who the government works for. I mean, the idea that this is the source of our freedom is like stuff out the nose funny to me. How did we get to the place where corporate free speech about voting is where our hopes reside?
2: So corporations have a number of ways that they can influence policy. One is spending in elections so that they get their candidate of choice elected. And that person may be more ideologically aligned with some of the goals of that corporation. So one of the goals that might cut across a lot of different corporate structures is the desire for what they would call tax efficiency. I think the rest of us would either call that tax avoidance or tax evasion. But that desire to have fewer taxes owed to the US government, I think, animates a lot of different corporations. And so one of the things that you saw in the lead up to the 2017 Trump tax cut, was a literal donor strike by big Republican donors. And what the big Republican donors said, and said in the press so that no one could miss it, was that if they didn't get their tax cut, they were going to close their their pocketbooks and not give to the Republican Party or to Republican candidates ever again. Because what was the point of spending all this money to get these people elected if they couldn't follow through and provide the tax cut that they were demanding? And lo and behold, you get the tax cut that they were demanding, and the corporate tax rate drops dramatically by 40% in that legislation, which becomes law. So I think that is sort of more typically what we see with corporate spending in politics. It's to elect people who will be responsive in that way. The other thing that you see with corporations is this betting on both blue and red at the same time. So no matter who is elected, they will be beholden to a corporate donor. And, and then finally, there's Much more money that is spent on lobbying than is ever spent during elections. And you could think about why that is. Part of it is that elections are for a finite amount of time. I know it feels like it's perpetual, but it actually is for a finite amount of time. The lobbying actually can be infinite. So, you know, whenever Congress is in session, lobbyists are in the halls pushing their clients' agenda in front of. Our lawmakers and trying to get the lawmaker to adopt the client's position, which is often a corporate position. And so corporations have an enormous ability to shape what's on the agenda of Congress by simply hiring a small army of usually lawyers to chat up every single member of Congress, to make it clear exactly what would please that, that corporate client. And lo and behold, you see it manifested in legislation that becomes law. I think one of the clear examples of that is the bankruptcy code, which is now just horrendous for people who are in debt, and really good for credit card companies. Like It's not by accident that that happens. Now with these social issues I think that is much more complicated. I think the more that the customer base of normal consumer products is enormously diverse and you know mostly going to be located in urban and suburban places in America those individuals are going to have a certain world view that is maybe not aligned with where the Republican Party seems to be right now. Now, it's hard to know exactly what the long-term impact of having Donald Trump as president will be over the long term. I'm hoping that that is more of a blip and not a foreshadowing of where we're going in terms of politics and Republican politics. But I think there is a difference between the electorate that put Joe Biden in the office, and the individuals who voted the other way. I feel like the chasm between those two choices was so epic. And, and that is not, I think, terribly typical of our last decades of elections. I mean, I think there's a reason why in 2000, Bush and Gore tied in Florida, the swing state, like there was not a huge difference. And if you go back and you look at the debates that the two of them had, they kept on saying like, I agree with him. I agree with him. I agree with him. And it was not i think such a life altering democracy altering question of like which of these two sort of middle of the road ish characters would become the next president and and i so i i'm very <laughs> worried about where american politics goes next and strangely one of the mediating factors may well be where corporate America's head is because I think a lot of corporate America has to think about a far more diverse customer base than the Republican has to think of in terms of a diverse electorate.
0: See that's so interesting because it it maps onto You know, a lot of the reporting that was done in Time magazine, I think in The New York Times that talked about the group of kind of good government groups, union groups and corporate groups that were organizing kind of in the shadows in the 2020 elections and all the ways in which Behind the scenes, corporate America was not going to allow the country to crater into chaos. Uh, and it again, you have this sense that corporate America, whatever we may think, has its finger on the pulse of do we want nihilism? Do we want, you know, January 6, riots like that that is bad for business fundamentally, and that that is powering some of this. It it, it makes me think of the Jane Mayer piece in The New Yorker, where she just had audio of Republican leadership saying, (laughs) we can't, people really freaking like H.R. 1. Like, they want to expand the franchise, and they like to have good, good government and open elections and transparency. And the idea i think that you're floating that's really interesting is that corporations are savvier about that than politicians are in some sense that they might be a harbinger of a just sense of when nihilism becomes too much to tolerate i don't know if that's if i'm overstating what you're what you're saying but that there's some hope there
2: I mean, one of the things that I tried to deal with in my second book, Political Brands, was the rejection of Trump by his former business partners. So when Trump announces that he's going to run for president, he has this very odd rollout where, you know, he comes down the escalator in Trump Tower. And then the next like words out of his mouth are Mexicans are rapists. And The reaction from his former business associates was, no, 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 (laughs) this man does not speak for us. I think most interestingly, Macy's, which had had a long business partnership with Donald Trump, selling his China-made ties to the public. Macy's heard that one speech, his announcement that he was running for president, and said No, (laughs) it doesn't matter if we've had a relationship for a decade or more, that we've made money selling your Trump-branded products. No more. That is it. And that happened with all sorts of different former business partners with Trump, that they saw his racism in that opening speech and said, No, thank you. We have uh, a customer base that we care about more than we care about you and we are not going to be associated with this type of rank racism. And you saw it again after Charlottesville. So after Charlottesville, Trump sort of famously says there were good people on both sides, even though one of the sides included neo-Nazis and someone who rammed a car into a woman and killed her. And after Charlottesville, you had these presidential committees that, you know, were ostensibly for advancing the business interests of, you know, business in general and the CEOs who were sitting on its businesses so that they, you know, they were related to the White House. Both of his business councils quit, like all of them after Charlottesville. And the way that I read that is that each of those CEOs, including like the CEO of Campbell's, they had a brand to protect, they had a image to protect in the mind of the public. And Trump saying that there were good people on both sides in Charlottesville was just a bridge too far for them. And so while they were willing to, you know, they were on the council so that they couldn't have been too upset with him in terms of what he had said before that. But when he seemingly endorsed or embraced or made excuses for all of that neo-Nazi nonsense, including the violence, that was too much for lots of corporations. And so rather than being on a White House business council, they all quit. And I think that showed some moral fortitude on the part of the the individuals who did that. And it also, I think, just Puts down a marker for what is acceptable and what is not acceptable behavior. So, as we were sort of talking about earlier, a lot of our norms came under a lot of crushing stress over the past four years. And I think one of the weird l- points of light in all of this was there were these instances like that where corporate leaders at least said, no, like, I am not going to be a party to this. And I think that's actually important, because to the extent that you didn't hear that from, you know, members of the House, you didn't hear that from members of the Senate, you didn't hear that from cabinet members. Trump cabinet members seem to stay there, like the enti- <laughs> like a lot of them, they stay there for the entire four years, like, you know, DeVos and Carson and, like, child, like they were there and said nothing about some of the abhorrent behavior we witnessed. But certain CEOs actually, I think, to their credit, did say something when it counted.
0: It it, it does make me want to re-up my sense that I tossed at you early on in the game that six months later, we can't remember which corporations they were and they can't remember. You know, like there is a, a way in which so much of this feels really fleeting. I, I don't want to let you go without talking about Mitch McConnell, speaking of Elaine Chao, because this was some next level stuff, right? This week we had in the midst of these, you know, Major League Baseball and, and Coke and Delta, we had Mitch McConnell in a written statement on Monday <laughs> Deeming all of this bullying. And he says it's jaw-dropping to see powerful American institutions not just permit themselves to be bullied, but join in the bullying themselves. Our private sector must stop taking cues from the outrage industrial complex. Uh, He talks about (laughs) American corporations behaving like a, quote, woke parallel government, and he threatens retributions unless corporations just shut up and start donating dark money again. I will not continue to read Mitch McConnell at you. I wonder if you want to just talk briefly, if you want, about how much this feels like it upends just the fundamental bargain of Citizens United, where... Under the guise of protecting corporate speech, we opened the geyser and let dark money pour out. Now it feels as though he's saying, hey, I didn't mean it with a part about corporate speech. Y'all shouldn't be talking, just write the checks. There, it, am I? I it's just the cynicism of Mitch McConnell is a little bit exploding my brain. So I wanted to give you the last word because it seems as though the thing he had been fighting really hard for, which is the dignity of corporations as quasi-human entities that need to speak, seems to have have taken a pie to the face this week.
2: So, as a uh, former Senate staffer, I have to say I have enormous respect for Senator McConnell. He has enormous to He is a master of knowing Senate procedure and how to use it and bend it to his will to get his way. All of those compliments aside, he has an enormous amount of chutzpah to claim that corporations should just shut up when he has spent so much of his career making sure that they have an outsized voice in our politics. So when McCain-Feingold was going through the Senate he claimed that disclosure alone would be enough. We don't have to have these limits on corporate speech. And then he lent his name to a lawsuit challenging McCain-Feingold that went all the way to the Supreme Court. I think much to his dismay, the McConnell case actually stands for the proposition that limits on corporate political speech at that time were perfectly constitutional. Then after that, we get the Citizens United challenge to the very same law. And even though the court had ruled in 2003 that in the McConnell case, limiting corporate expenditures in politics was a good way to prevent corruption and the appearance of corruption, when you get to Citizens United, the same laws is being challenged and the Supreme Court After its first oral argument in Citizens United, they order a second oral argument, and then the Supreme Court itself changes the question in the case, and they change it to, should we overrule the part of McConnell that had limited corporate free speech? And the rest is history. The Supreme Court in Citizens United rules that Corporations do have a First Amendment right to spend an unlimited amount of money in our elections. And almost as soon as this opinion comes out, Mitch McConnell gets on the floor of the Senate and starts deriding disclosure of money in politics. And it didn't matter that this was a complete flip-flop. He ever since has been a champion of dark money. And by dark money, I mean money that is spent in politics by the millions but no amount of due diligence on the part of a voter or an academic like me will ever get to the bottom of where this money comes from. And a lot of this money, I presume, is actually corporate money. And the reason that I make that assumption is the biggest corporate political spender is the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which is a dark money conduit. And the members of the Chamber of Commerce are a bunch of corporations but we don't know which ones are funding the negative political ads that we see each political season but McConnell has been a beneficiary of all of that corporate spending and his super PAC has millions and millions of dollars from corporations in general and publicly traded corporations in particular, this is one of the reasons why I think that we need new rules at the federal level. We need better disclosure of money in politics. And I would go one step further and say that shareholders should have a vote on corporate political spending. This is how our cousins over in the UK do it. They allow shareholders to vote on corporate political budgets, and that limits how much corporations can spend in the UK. And I think a similar restraint would be useful in the United States. I think unfettered corporate political spending doesn't get us the results in the democratic process that we want.
0: Chara Torres Spellese is a professor of law at Stetson University College of Law, where she teaches election law, corporate governance, business entities, and constitutional law. She's also a Brennan Fellow at the Brennan Center. And her book, Political Brands, was published in 2019. I want to have a really long conversation about disclosure. It's going to have to wait. But I do think that that little window you opened at the very end— where disclosure was supposed to be the solution for Justice Kennedy and Citizens United. And now we're all opposed to disclosure. I think that's the thing that we really need to be mindful of as we think about money in politics is where it's coming from.
2: Can I add one last thing? Please, please, please. I would encourage all of your listeners to, if you care about money and politics or you care about our democracy, to call your two senators and encourage them to vote in favor of S one,
0: and that's the Senate version of HR one, uh, the For the People Act. Chara, it's been so great having you. It's you have um, uh, unmatched ability to laugh and be super sad at the same time. It's a gift. Uh, thank you for joining. <laughs> of course. <laughs> And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you so much for your letters and your questions. You can keep in touch at amicus at slate.com or you can find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. We had research help from Daniel Malouf, Gabriel Roth is editorial director, Alicia Montgomery is executive producer, June Thomas is senior managing producer of Slate Podcast, and we will be back with another episode of Amicus in two short weeks.